Some of our newer members in this congregation who came from other traditions are experiencing their very first liturgical season of Advent. And for those of you who are visiting who may never have heard of Advent, it's simply a time of year where millions of Christians, dating back centuries, uh, intentionally focus on the promise of the Savior. And we spend uh, these four weeks before Christmas uh, praying more earnestly and thinking more uh, deeply on the gift of Jesus, this word made flesh we hear about in John's gospel. And during this uh, Advent season, uh, I have been blessed and edified by the number of people who've taken time to send a message or leave a note in my box saying that uh, it has been a good journey and the sermons have been helpful. And if that's the case, then all I can say as your brother in Christ is a soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Uh, just for the sake of you who are visiting today or our members who have had to be away because of um, work and other responsibilities, caring for loved ones and other parts of the country, um, we have been focusing these last three weeks on some very significant people in God's plan of salvation. On the very first Sunday in Advent, we meditated on John the Baptist, and he's mentioned today in our gospel reading. You heard the reference to John, didn't you? Who was able to say that um, he, Jesus, the Word, ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And that's interesting insofar that when Mary hears the news that she's going to conceive the Savior in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the angel Gabriel comes and tells her about this, she goes to tell one of her cousins, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is already six months pregnant with John. So Jesus and John are, are cousins, second, third. They're part of the same tribe. And John is able to say, well, even though I'm you know, six months older than my earthly uh, relation, Jesus of Nazareth, um, he ranks ahead of me because he's always existed. He's the word, the eternal word. And Jesus said of John, uh, among those born of the human race, no one's greater. No one's greater than John the Baptist. So with an endorsement like that from Christ himself, we do well to listen to what John has to say. And all of those sermons of uh, the season of Advent that you might not have heard are available on our uh, church website as an audio file. We then focused on the role of Joseph, who's often overlooked in many of the Christmas narratives. Um, and Joseph uh, had a role to play, a very significant role. He I had a decision to make about obedience to the will of God. He had plans for his life to be a carpenter and raise a family. And instead, he's now going to be the earthly father, kind of the adoptive father of the Savior. And one of the wonderful, significant things that Joseph did was he took Mary and little baby Jesus out of Israel when a a word came to Joseph in a dream that King Herod was going to try to have the Savior put to death. And historians don't know if it was a matter of months or maybe as much as two or three years that they had to flee as refugees. Think about that. Jesus and his family were refugees um, in Egypt before it was safe to come back and our Lord could fulfill his mission on earth. And then last week we focused on Mary, the mother of our Lord. And my prayer is that we can all say with Mary, uh, here I am. Here I am, Lord. You know me through and through. 
all my joy, all my sorrow, all my faithfulness, all my sins. Here I am, Lord. Uh, I want to be your servant. Let it be with me according to your will. And of all the things that have been said about Mary through the years and all the different ways that particular church bodies on earth um, think on and teach about Mary theologically, that to me is the most significant. That she simply says, I want to serve the Lord and let it be with me according to his will. That's something we can all uh, do as children of our uh, Father in heaven. Today, of course, our focus shifts this fourth Sunday of Advent on Jesus. And John tells us some very significant and important things about who Jesus is in these first verses of his gospel, his version of the good news of Jesus Christ. He reminds us that Jesus is the Word. That's very different language than you hear in the other gospels who talk about, you know, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled and Joseph went back to Bethlehem. I mean, John gets very theological in his gospel, doesn't he? The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word was God in the beginning. And the Word is God now and forever. This Word is Jesus. And so if the Word was with God and the Word is God, that means Jesus is God. And of course he is. He's the second person of the Trinity. And the beginning of which John speaks is not the earthly advent, the appearance of Jesus about 2,000 years ago when Mary gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in those swaddling strips of cloth. John is, of course, referring to the beginning, the beginning of human history as we know it, recorded in the book of Genesis. And when we go to Genesis, it's in the beginning. <laughs> God said, and as God speaks, let there be light. Let us make humankind in our image. Um, that which had been um, void and formless, chaotic, if you will, takes on beauty and shape and form and order according to God's perfect plan. I mean, creation originally was a beautiful, perfect, perfect entity. And it's Jesus, the, the word that God speaks. It's Jesus who's there with the spirit as the world is called into being. And that word, Jesus, God, became flesh. That word that was there as creation was called into being entered creation. And this is a great mystery, is it not? That Jesus left the beauty and the perfection and everything that was so sublime about the heavenly realm and came to earth. And in Christ, John reminds us that, that we see God fully divine and fully human at the same time. And one of the things we need to remember is that Jesus was not created as you and I were created. Jesus is not creature. Jesus is one with the creator. He is the Lord over creation who's, who, who enters creation to redeem it, to save you and me from ourselves and from the power of sin and death. And that's why John goes on to tell us that in Jesus there is life, 
And in that life there is light. And without him, there is no life. And without the light of the world, Jesus, there's only darkness. Now let's be honest, as we should always be honest in worship, in prayer, in preaching and teaching. Non-believers might say, I, I have life. I, I'm an atheist. I, I don't need Jesus to have life. And I was reminded as I was preparing this message, thinking about non-believers. And some of you have heard this story before. A long time ago, when this congregation blessed me by encouraging me and insisting that I work on my doctorate, one of the first things I had to do in 2001 was bring together a group of 30 people, a cross-section, if you will, of the congregation, younger, older, long-standing members, new members, 8 o'clock people, 11 o'clock people, 9.30 people. And they all filled out the same survey and answered the same questions. And when I sent that off to Fuller Seminary and went for my first seminar, the very first day of class, I mean, I felt like I was back in grade school. Who's wilder? Who's wilder? Oh, you know, what did I do? I mean, it's the first minute of the first day of class, and I felt like I was being scolded. And he says, you know, we've been doing these surveys for years, and yours is the first congregation I've ever seen where you've got 30 people here who said an answer to the question, they don't have any friends who aren't Christians. That's just amazing. And so I went through the two-week seminar, and then I had to come back and regroup with those same 30 people. And some of you might be part of that original group. And I said, you know, the first day of class, it was really awkward for me because I got called out by the teacher, and I felt like I was in third grade being sent to the principal's office. And he said, ours is the first church where no one has any friends who aren't Christian. And one of the women in the group said, oh, pastor, you know, when you gave us those questionnaires and left the room, we, we all talked among ourselves. And, well, we, we have friends who aren't Christian. But we thought by answering that way, we'd help you get a better grade. <laughs> so I hope you're not offended that I have friends who are atheists. And I want my life to be my sermon. And our mission as a people here at Faith is to lead people to Christ. If people already know Christ, how can we lead them to Christ? So our mission might be leading people to Christ who don't know him. Or what they've heard about him doesn't have anything to do with the Jesus we meet in scripture. And the God of love who died in our place on a cross. And some of my atheist, agnostic friends and some of yours might say, I, I have life. I'm alive. So why do I need this Jesus? And to a real extent, they would be correct. Now you do have life. Plants have life. Reptiles and amphibians have life. Avian species have life. But Jesus is the one who comes to bring life that is so much more than respiration, so much more than an existence between point A and point B, so much more than an activity of a nervous system until that nervous system shuts down 
once and for all. You see, Jesus came that we, have, we would have more than existence and more than breathing and a, and a consciousness, but that we would have a life that's true life. A life that's lived in full communion with the God who formed us in our mother's wombs. With the God who wants us all to be his sons and daughters. See, Jesus came to give us this life that is spent in such a way that you can't measure it by money. He wants us to have a life that money can't buy, a life that is spent, if you will, in communion with God and in communion with one another by the way in which we dare to love one another as those for whom the Savior was willing to die. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable of a wise man and a foolish man. And they both build their homes, one on rock, the wise man, one on sand, the foolish. And the storms of life rage around them, and they both have to deal with the floods, the rain, the winds. And the foolish man's home comes crashing down, and the wise man, his home is still standing. And Jesus says, what I'm telling you here is be doers of the word. Think about this now theologically with me. Jesus is the Word. He's existed with the Father and the Spirit forever. He's not creature, but creator. He's the Word made flesh. And now Jesus says, for those who have ears to hear, I want you to be doers of the Word, not just listeners. You see, when we meditate this Christmas on the Word made flesh, Jesus doesn't want us to think of the Word made flesh as just another thing or just another word, lowercase w, to be added to our vocabulary. Just another word in the long list of words. He is the word, the word made flesh. And he wants us to be doing that word, to live to the best of our ability in the midst of all of our frailties and all of our setbacks and all of our disappointments, to live the Jesus way to build our home on the solid rock that is Jesus. And isn't it interesting in the parable from Matthew? You can look that up on your own in the seventh chapter. The wise man is not placed in a protective bubble. He has to deal with the same menacing weather, the same difficulties of life. He's not free from pain and suffering. Both the wise and the foolish face these storms of life. But the wise man was still there when the world hit him and hit him hard and hit him repeatedly. His life, his world, did not come crashing down because it was built on something better. Something strong and good and pure. It's built on the word, on Jesus, the God of love, the God of life, who gives us a life. That's not just existence. A life the world cannot give and a life the world cannot steal from us, no matter what. And this next teaching from John is very important. We are reminded that from the beginning, the word made flesh was rejected. Some preferred darkness. Herod wanted him put to death. When Jesus walked the earth and began teaching and preaching, 
Some rejected him. His own religious leaders in his own faith community plotted on how they might trip him up and humiliate him in public, how they might trap him in his own words and set him up for rejection. But the same one rejected then and rejected by so many now is also the one who is received. We are called, you and I, to witness to this life and the light of this kind of love, willing to go to the cross even when the world rejected him. And we are called to witness to the word, the word, knowing that some will reject our invitation. Some will not want to hear what we have to say. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It happened to Christ. It happened to the first disciples. But we do our best to lead others to Jesus, knowing that we have no guarantee that someone might say, well, thank you for sharing. How do I find out more? I want to be a Christian too. That may sadden us. It has saddened me. I've been here nearly 20 years. I'm still working on some people I know to come worship for the first time here. And just so you know, I sent out at 5 a.m. my private messages on Facebook to some of those people who keep putting me off. I'm not going to give up until Jesus calls me home. Because they might show up and experience the living God in worship that you can't experience anywhere else. And I want them to have that and I want them to experience that before their existence has ended. I want to see them in heaven. Last night after the five o'clock service, one of our fellow church members said, you know, I so much want to tell some of the people where I work about Jesus because I listen to them talk about their lives and their pain, their habits, and there's so much brokenness, and there's so much fear, and there's so much cynicism, but I'm worried that if I tell them about Jesus and invite them to church, they might treat me differently. I so appreciate her honesty. I so appreciate her being real and saying, that's the fear. They might treat me differently. But you know what she said? She goes, but this year I decided to go ahead and try. And out of the multitude of people that she invited, one said, I'll come. I'll come with you Christmas Eve this one time and check it out. So I'm praying God does something big and holy as only God can do it tonight for that one person who was invited by a sister in Christ who took the chance to reach out and move beyond her comfort zone. C.S. Lewis, who becomes more and more dear to me the older I get, said there are two kinds of people. You know, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God has to say, all right then, you can have it your own way. <laughs> but we're in the business, if you will, of helping people come to that place of mercy and grace and realization where they can say, Lord, your will be done. I've had it my way long enough. I want to be a word doer. And John tells us this word is God, the living God in the flesh, true man, truly human, true God, truly divine. And we must say, especially in this day and age, 
that Jesus is not just a good teacher. Christ is not just a wise prophet. He is God indeed, wrapped in human flesh. And as much as we might want to be respectful and tolerant and celebrating diversity, we simply cannot agree with the relativists who say that all religious paths lead to God. They don't. Some lead to destruction. And we must go and seek the mind of Christ who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All other religious leaders through the ages are mere mortals. Not one religious teacher or leader is God enfleshed. This is Jesus and only Jesus. And some of you have heard this quote before. I'm turning again to C.S. Lewis. If you still got some Christmas shopping to do, mere Christianity, mere Christianity is a good one. I'm going to quote from it. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people so often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the same level as the man who says, I'm a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. So you can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him. You can try to kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But do not let us come with this patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us because he did not intend to. And Jesus is the one, John reminds us, who provides grace upon grace. Don't take that word for granted. None of us deserves the grace God has shown us. Not one of us can call ourselves righteous because of what we've done or because of all the things we've avoided doing. At the foot of the cross, we're sinners one and all. Without Jesus, we're all as good as dead, no matter how polite, how law-abiding, how hard-working we may be. We are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Because of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. Uh, think of that as a double serving. Think of that at you know, your favorite family table with your Christmas dinner. Oh, that's not enough for you. You need some more mashed potatoes. Have more. Fill up. Be satisfied. Be blessed. Grace upon grace, a double serving. We're not saved by good works. We're not even saved by a decision to follow Jesus. We are saved by the decision Jesus made to die for sinners like you and me. And then our faith and our good works and our decisions to follow him, that's all in response to what he decided to do for us when we didn't even know him. My prayer for the four services tonight would be that people who don't know Christ and maybe are being dragged along by their relatives 
hear this message of the word made flesh. This God who gives us grace upon grace. This God who was there when the world was called into being and will come at the end of history as we know it to judge the living and the dead. My prayer is that our congregation, by your witness in the world and by what we do collectively, singing praises to God, will lead people to Christ, that they might have life and have it forever. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the word made flesh, your son Jesus. We need the light of his life to shine brightly in our hearts, our minds, our homes. We're so familiar, Father, with the darkness that can surround us, that can invade our lives. We know that darkness too well. We confess that we would be lost without you. And that it is your grace alone which is sufficient and that saves us from sin and death, even saves us from ourselves. Help us to be people of light in a world of so much darkness, so much pain, so much confusion. May others be led to faith in you through the love you've established among us and through our witness to your truth, your goodness, and your mercy that is perfect. All this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.